Right, so if you have your Bible, go ahead and open to the book of 2 Corinthians. It'll be 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, you can go ahead and uh, raise your hand. Somebody from the back will be happy to bring you one. And while you're doing that, 3rd through 5th graders, you are dismissed to your class in the back. So 3rd through 5th graders, you can go ahead uh, and go there. Uh, and so, 2 Corinthians 3, uh, we're going to be reading verses 7 through 18. Um, so, the version I'm reading from might sound a little bit different than the one you're reading from. So, if that's the case, uh, just bear with me and understand that the general meaning will be the same. And that's just a few words might be different here and there. Uh, so, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 through 18. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which is being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Um, So if you look around... Our culture, even think of yourself in this situation, it becomes pretty obvious that we are obsessed with transformation and with change, are we not? Uh, think about it. Uh, physically, we, we diet, we exercise, we use Fitbits to track our every movement. Does anybody have one of those? I've never used one. They look pretty cool. But um, We do all those things trying to transform ourselves physically. Uh, think about this with our wardrobes. We buy new clothes, we buy new shoes in an effort to upgrade our wardrobes and then transform how we look. If we're athletes, we work hard to hone our skills to transform ourselves into better players. If you're a musician, you try to become the best musician you can be by practicing changing yourself into that. If you're an artist, same thing. If you're in theater, same thing. Whatever your skills are, you work at them in an effort to change yourself into something better. Even with our our houses, this is true. We paint and we remodel our houses. We redo the landscaping in an effort to improve them and ultimately transform them into something better. And so none of these things are bad things in and of themselves unless they become uh, kind of a selfish, narcissistic obsession. Uh, But that's another sermon in and of itself, so uh, we'll save that for another time. But all of these things are good things. There's nothing wrong with them. And so today, I just want to focus on this aspect of transformation. So I want you to think about all of those things I just said, and maybe even some other areas of our lives that we try to change, and think about how in each of those areas, the power for transformation is entirely from within ourselves, and it's entirely possible. 
So physically, obviously there's a ceiling on this for us, but if we diet and if we exercise, if we exert enough energy and follow the right rules for diet and exercise, our bodies will change. Again, there's a ceiling on that, but it will happen. With our wardrobes, you just follow the right rules of fashion. You might need a consultant for that. And you spend the money, but you, you can change your wardrobe. It's pretty easy. Even with our skills, as, as an athlete, I can go out and I can put the time in. If I spend four hours a day working on uh, my ball handling as a basketball player, I'm going to transform myself as a player. If I play whatever instrument it might be, if I spend four hours a day practicing that, I'm going to get better. I will improve. With our houses, I'm actually doing this, doing this with my house right now. You can paint it, you can remodel, you can change things to make it better. But I have the power to do that. That's probably what I'll do this afternoon, go paint something in my house. And so we're constantly seeking transformation in all of these areas. And again, that's a good thing. And in all of these areas, the power for that transformation comes within ourselves. You know, we essentially dig deep and find the drive, find the energy and the effort, and we make it happen. And again, this is a good thing. It's not good, however, when we apply this principle of transformation to our spiritual lives. And this is what I see a lot of Christians doing. We think, all right, I'm, I'm a Christian now. I'm saved. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to muster up all my strength and all my energy, and I'm just going to put it all towards making myself into a better Christian. That's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to just transform myself as a Christian. Right? And that's, unfortunately, I think that's kind of the, the prevailing mindset within uh, the church speaking broadly today is that we as Christians think that the power of transformation comes from within ourselves and that we just seek to change ourselves. Uh, And the truth is, we don't have that power, and it doesn't work. So you might be able to cut a few inches off your waistline by your own power, but you can't transform the distorted, sinful desires of your heart by your own power. You might be able to improve your jump shot a little bit by your own power, but you can't overcome that sin you're struggling with by your own power. You might be able to transform your house completely, but you can't overcome that addiction by your own power and your own strength. And you can try. And some of you probably have experience with this. Maybe some of you are trying this right now, where you're trying all in your own power to change yourself as a Christian. You're trying to improve yourself, better yourself, overcome this sin, overcome this addiction and this struggle, and you just can't do it. Because the power for true, lasting, eternal change does not reside within us. And again, when I'm talking about this kind of change, I'm not talking about some minor behavior modifications. Like, I can change some small habits of mine, some of my small behaviors on my, with my own power. You know, I might be able to maybe exert my own energy to get up earlier so I can spend ten more minutes reading Scripture as opposed to two minutes. Does that make sense? That's kind of a small behavior-modifying change. I'm not talking about those kind of small changes. We can do those things. I'm talking about the kind of deep, lasting, eternal soul transformation 
that cannot come from within ourselves. So how do we experience this type of change if we don't have the power to do it? And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the passage that we just read, the Apostle Paul answers this question for us. And so if you look back at that, he does so first by talking about Moses. Uh, So verses 7 through 9 says this, Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. So notice in that passage how he talks about Moses and his face and the Israelites and all of these things. All right, so what he's referring to is Exodus chapter 34. So if you want to turn there quick, you don't have to. It might be helpful. Exodus 34. You might hold your spot in 2 Corinthians. But Exodus 34, uh, verses 29 through 35. I believe that's on the screen. It is. Good job, Dan. So what's going on in Exodus 34 is this. This is after the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt, after the plagues, after the parting of the Red Sea. They're free from that now. And so what happens is Moses has gone up to Sinai to meet with God so that God could give him the law, give him the commandments. And so when this happened, this was the start of the the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. So he gives Moses the law. This is the start of the Old Covenant. And what happens is Moses goes back down from the mountain after he's been communing with God. And he goes back to the camp with the Israelites. And his face is shining. All right, so let's read this in Exodus 34, starting in verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. So again, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai after talking with God. He has the law in his hands. This is from God. And his face is shining. It's reflecting the glory of God because he had been talking with God. And it says that when the Israelites saw Moses and his face shining, they were afraid. Now, why were they afraid? I don't know about you, but if somebody comes to me and his face is shining, I'm thinking that's pretty cool. Like, I'm probably going to pull out my phone and Snapchat that to everybody or put that on Instagram. So why were they afraid? They were afraid because... The glory of God, as it was being reflected from Moses' face, was a terrifying thing. And it was a terrifying thing because that glory is the glory that came with the ministry of the Old Covenant, the ministry of the law. And this ministry, back in 2 Corinthians, is what Paul calls a ministry of death and a ministry of condemnation. 
So the Israelites were afraid because Moses came back down with the law, began the ministry of the law, and this ministry was a ministry of death and of condemnation. And so why is the ministry of the law a ministry of death and of condemnation? Because the law has only the power to condemn and so bring death and then condemnation. All right, so let's think about this here. The law, with all of its commandments, reveals to us the glory of God's righteousness. All right, so what the law does is it essentially highlights God's righteousness by placing it next to our unrighteousness. So let me explain this a little bit more. When you look at the commandments of the law, you're basically looking at the standards for God's righteousness. All right, think of the Ten Commandments here. Hopefully you're familiar with those. If not, that's okay. But think of the Ten Commandments. All right, and so what they're basically saying is this. So don't steal, don't use the Lord's name in vain, don't have any gods before me, don't commit adultery, don't covet, all of these things. And so what they're saying is this. So doing these things, this is basically the standard of being righteous before God. Abstaining from these things or doing these things, that's living up to God's righteousness. However, if you have violated these things, then you have fallen short of the glory of God, and therefore you stand condemned. And so the whole point of the law is to highlight our unrighteousness. Because think about this. When you look at the law, again, think of the Ten Commandments here. You look at those things, what do you know, I mean, deeply in your heart? I, I look at those and I think, I've broken that. I've done that. Every single one of them. I, I see those commandments and I think, I have failed to live up to God's standard of righteousness. I have fallen short of the glory of God. And this is the purpose that God had for the law, to expose our unrighteousness. Now, do you know what the law can do to help you once you've broken it? And by the way, every single one of us has broken it. Every single person has. Do you know what the law can do to help us once we've broken it? Nothing. The law has no power to reconcile us to God. And it has no power to bring us spiritual life. On top of that, the law has no power to make us do what it commands. So in other words, it tells us what to do and what not to do, but it can't actually make us do it. And so this is why Paul calls the ministry of the law a ministry of death and of condemnation. Because it has no power to save. It has only the power to condemn. And so when the people of Israel in Exodus 34, when they saw Moses' face shining... They were essentially seeing the glory of God being reflected from his face, and they couldn't handle it because to them the glory of God was a terrifying thing. And it was a terrifying thing because they were under the ministry of death and of condemnation. See, the glory of God being reflected from the face of Moses served to expose their unrighteousness before God, and so they were afraid. The glory of God is a terrifying thing to those who are unrighteous. And so as it says, because they couldn't bear to look upon the glory of God in the face of Moses, Moses had to put a veil over his face. 
so that they couldn't see it. And so this veil was representative of the barrier that existed between God and man. It represented, again, the, the distance between them, the, the separation that occurred between God and man because of man's sinfulness. And so this ministry of the law had no power to bridge this gap. It had no power to repair the distance that existed between God and man. It had no power to remove the veil from Moses' face so that they could look upon the glory of God. And so really quick, side note, if you're looking to the commandments of the law for your transformation, you're looking in the wrong place. If you're a Christian and you're looking to the commandments of the law, you're looking in the wrong place. If you're not a Christian and you're looking to the commandments of the law as your standard of righteousness to reconcile you to God, you're looking in the wrong place. The law has no power to do that. It was never intended to. It cannot give you the power to do it. It cannot reconcile you to God. It cannot bring you freedom from your sin. Uh, A theologian, Sinclair Ferguson, said this concerning the law. The only thing God's commandments can do is to make you sense your guilt for failure to keep them. Because that's what they're for. To show us that we need more than commandments and divine lecture. We need divine power. So in other words, what he's saying, the law was intended to be commandments or divine lecture to tell us what to do and what not to do. Their whole point was to show us that we are guilty and that we don't need divine lecture. We don't need God to tell us what to do. We need God's power to help us to do it. And so where do we find this divine power to obey God's commands, if not in the law? And the answer that Paul gives is in the ministry of the new covenant. And so looking back at Exodus 34, remember the old covenant, it came with great glory. And you saw that in Moses' face. That was the glory of the old covenant, the glory of the law. It came with great glory. But as great as this was, the glory of the new covenant far exceeds it. And this is what Paul talks about in verses, verses we just read, and in verses 10 and 11. Uh, so 10 and 11, he says this, Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So what he's saying is that the old covenant, the ministry of the law, it came with a great degree of glory, as you saw with Moses and his face shining. He says, as glorious as this was, the ministry of the new covenant far exceeds it. It comes with far more glory. Because the ministry of Moses, the ministry of the law, was coming to an end. That was temporary. Now, the ministry of the new covenant is permanent. Its glory far exceeds that of Moses in the law. And so, first of all, let me explain what the new covenant is. The new covenant is enacted by Christ in His blood. You think about the Last Supper, He said, This is the new covenant in My blood, shed for you and for all people. Christ enacted the new covenant. And now it is carried on by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is the new covenant as opposed to the law. And so, 
How are these times under the new covenant more glorious than those of the old? How is this new covenant and the ministry of the Spirit more glorious than the old covenant and the ministry of the law? And so let's read verses 12 through 18. Paul gives us the answer there. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. All right. Notice uh, how in verse 14, it says, Only through Christ is this veil taken away. And so the first thing the ministry of the new covenant does for us is it gives us right standing with God. You don't have to turn there, but in Romans 8, 3 and 4, Paul, writing again, says that God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What Paul is saying there is that the demands of the law have been met by Christ on our behalf. Right, the, the demands of the law have been met by Christ on our behalf. And so the law demands, first of all, that the wrath of God be poured out on those people who have violated it. So for violating God's holiness, the law demands that God's wrath be poured out on us. However, that wrath has been imputed or credited to Christ on the cross. And so Christ met that demand of the law on our behalf. The law also demands that we be completely righteous before God in order to be accepted by Him. Again, Christ lived a perfect, righteous life, and that is imputed or credited to us who are in Christ. So the law demands that God's wrath be poured out on those who violate it. Christ took that wrath upon Himself. The law also demands that we be perfectly righteous before God to be accepted by Him. Christ's righteousness is credited to us. So now we are accepted before God because we now have Christ's righteousness and we therefore are accepted by God. Christ has met the demands of the law on our behalf. God, through Christ's work on the cross, has given us right standing with Himself. The law could not do this. The law had only the power to condemn. It had no power to reconcile us to God. It had no power to remove the veil, the barrier that existed between God and man. And this is why in verse 18, it's talking about unveiled faces. It says, we all, in other words, all of us, all believers in Christ, we all, with unveiled 
face, beholding the glory of the Lord. Right? We all with unveiled face. Remember, the veil represents the separation of man and God. It's that barrier that exists between God and man. In verse 14, he says, under Christ, when one turns to Christ, that veil is removed. And so now, we all who are in Christ, we have no veil, no separation between us and God. We are free now to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, unlike the Israelites. This veil is removed because we now have right standing with God that Christ has given us. And the glory of God is no longer a fearful thing for us. Listen, we can gaze upon God's glory. God's glory no longer reveals our unrighteousness before God because guess what? We no longer have unrighteousness before God because we have Christ's righteousness before God. So we are now free to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The Israelites couldn't even look at a reflection of God's glory. Moses' face was shining. It was only a reflection of God's glory, and that was fading. We can look at the real thing. Right? Jesus Christ, the, the image, the perfect image of God. God's glory manifests itself perfectly and fully and unfading in the face of Jesus Christ. And so now we are free to behold that glory because we now have Christ's righteousness. Not only does the ministry of the new covenant, however, give us Christ's standing before God of perfectly righteous, it also gives us the spirit of Christ which empowers us to live transformed lives. So once again, as I've said previously, the law told us what to do and what not to do. But it couldn't give us the power to actually do those things. Let me give this illustration. When I was in college, I coached junior high basketball at a small Christian school in Indiana. Uh, let me tell you, the overall talent level at the school was not very high. If you could take that talent, that level of basketball that they played, and compare it to what we play here, not that we're, I mean, amazing or anything, but it was comparatively low uh, to the level of basketball that we play here. And so my team was not very good. We won maybe between the A team and the B team three games all year. Um, but as the coach, my role basically for practices was this. I basically just gave them commandments. I basically told them what to do and then what not to do. All right, in this situation, when you see the defender do this, you need to do this. Do this. In this situation, don't do that. That's not going to work. All right, so do this, don't do that. I basically just gave them basketball commandments. And it was kind of cool because as the season went on, they really began to catch on to these things. And so by late in the season, they knew what to do and they knew what not to do. I could ask them, like, hey, man, what would you do right there that you shouldn't have done? And he's like, oh, yeah, I did that. I shouldn't have done that. I know. We'd watch film. I would just stop and be like, hey, you know, what just happened there? And what should you have done? And they could tell me the answer most of the time. In fact, they even began to echo these commandments back to each other. You know, I went say something, all of a sudden this one kid would like start telling another kid what I always tell them, so it was kind of funny to watch. Oh, but here's the thing. As well as they knew my commandments, we still struggled to win games. And do you know why? Because they couldn't actually do them. 
even though they knew my commandments, they simply did not have the power to do them. They couldn't put them into practice. And this was so hard and frustrating to watch as a coach because I would just stand on the sidelines during a game and just look at them and watch them play. And I was like, they know what they're supposed to be doing, but they just don't have the athletic ability or the power to actually do it. And so I remember standing on the sidelines during games and I would just stand there and just watch them struggle. And I was just like, man, if I could only, like, take my power and just, like, my athletic ability, my skill and my ability and just, like, transfer it for me into their little pubescent, unathletic junior high bodies, like, we would be set. (laughs) I'm not a great basketball player, but I'm good enough to dominate at the junior high level. (laughs) And so if those kids would have had my ability, we would have run circles around all the other teams. It would have been awesome. We would have been just incredible. But I I couldn't do that, could I? If you think of a way to do that, by the way, that would be awesome. Like, tell me. As a coach, I mean, we'll have the best junior high teams around if you figure out how to do that. Uh, but I couldn't. I couldn't do that. And so, as Christians, we know the commandments. We know what to do. We know what we're supposed to do. We know what not to do. But we don't have the power in ourselves to do those things. We simply can't do it. Do you know who does have the power to do those things? Jesus. Do you know whose spirit lives inside of you if you are in Christ? The spirit of Christ. Under the ministry of the new covenant, God has given us his power through the presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is what empowers us for true and lasting eternal transformation. This is what Paul is talking about in verse 18 when he says, being transformed from one degree of glory to another. So so how does this transformation take place? Look at this passage. All right, so he says, transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. It's right there. He just said, all right, we're going to be transformed. Our spiritual trans- transformation, it will happen. How does it happen? What's the key? As he says, with unveiled face, we behold the glory of the Lord. So in other words, as we, we are now free to behold the glory of Christ. As we do so as we look upon his image, it says that we will be transformed into the same image. So the word behold here, I believe, actually kind of has a meaning of like looking in a mirror and looking at something in a mirror. So if you can picture this, picture walking up to a mirror and instead of seeing your own face, seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, seeing the face of Jesus in all its glory. And so the idea is this, that as we stand there and as we look into that mirror and behold the glory of Christ, we will be gradually transformed into the same image. 
Listen, the goal of our lives as Christians is not just to become better versions of ourselves. The goal of our Christian lives is to become like Christ. And the cool thing is that is happening now as we speak, and that will happen. We look upon Christ's glory, and we are from one degree of glory to another. This implies a gradual change. It's not instantaneous. You don't just become a Christian, and then, you know, I don't just believe in Christ, and just, boom, all of a sudden I'm conformed to the image of Christ. It doesn't work like that. If if you're a Christian, you know what I'm talking about. It's a slow and painful process. From one degree of glory to another. Step by step, slow, painful, but it's happening, and it will happen. We behold His glory, and we're transformed into the same image. Where does the power come for for this? Look at the last sentence of verse 18. For this comes from within ourselves, because we're awesome. Right? That's not what it says, is it? Right, where does this come from? You've had plenty of time to think now. And plenty of time to kind of maul over that one sentence there. Where does this come from? Where does this power of transformation come from? Makes it clear, yes, this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We behold the glory of Christ with unveiled face. As we do so, the Holy Spirit works inside of us to transform us into the same image that we're beholding. It's not us who has the power to change. We don't change ourselves as Christians. The Holy Spirit is at work to transform us. So, man, if you're in here, you're a Christian, my word for you is this. If you're sitting there and you're thinking, like, man, I'm struggling. I, I just want to get better. I want to be transformed. I want to, I want to see change in my life. I'm struggling with the sin. I'm struggling with this addiction, uh, with whatever it is. My word for you is this. Get your eyes off of yourself and get your eyes onto Christ. Stop fixating on your lack of glory and start focusing on Christ's glory. Because the goal is, again, not to become better versions of ourselves. The goal is to become like Christ. And it's not when we fixate on ourselves that we're changed. It's when we fixate on Christ, when we behold His glory, that the Holy Spirit works inside of us to transform us into the same image. And so, man, if you're in here and you're a Christian Get your eyes off of you. Get your eyes onto Christ. And how do we do this? Let's get really practical now. How do we do this? How do we practically in everyday life behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? And I I think there are a lot of ways, but three primary ways that I could think of in preparing for this. And the first is this. We behold the glory of Christ by soaking ourselves in the Word of Christ. Listen, absorb God's Word. Store it up in your heart. We always say we don't have time for it. We do. We don't make time for it. And so, man, just read the Bible. And don't read it as a checklist item, as as a religious ritual. Did this for the day, I'm done. Read the Bible as a means to behold the glory of Christ. Right, see it. It's in the pages. Every page of Scripture is filled with the glory of God. Look there. Read it to see the glory of God. 
And so spend time in the word of Christ to behold his glory. Second thing is this, spend time in prayer to Christ. Rhonda, with Rhonda, we just did this, the acts, adore, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. All right, one of the most neglected things in our prayer lives as Christians is the first letter, A, for adore. All right, spend time in prayer, adoration of Christ. Ask him, man, help me to behold your glory. Show me your glory. And last thing is this. Spend time with Christ's people. God is at work in and through his people. I myself might be struggling to see how the Holy Spirit is at work in my life. However, I can come to corporate worship and see the Holy Spirit at work in the life of God's people. This is why the Bible says, do not neglect to meet together. Right? Don't neglect time with other Christians. This is why what we do here on Sunday mornings is so important. What we do, man, we gather together collectively as the body of Christ, as those who have been redeemed. We all come with unveiled face, and we behold the glory of God. And as we do so, we collectively are being transformed into the same image. This is what we do, and we're singing songs up here, right? beholding the glory of God collectively. This is what Sunday morning is about. Do not neglect time with other Christians. And so three primary ways we can behold Christ's glory. Spend time in the word of Christ. Spend time in prayer to Christ and with him. And spend time with Christ's people. And do all of those things, not as a religious checklist, a little ritual to check off, but as a means to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so church, stop trying to transform yourselves. You can do it with all these other things in your life, and that's fine, but we can't transform ourselves as believers in Christ. Stop trying to make rules for yourself and setting you know, these strict rules to try to make yourself better. Stop trying to change yourself. Start beholding the glory of Christ. And as you do so, the Holy Spirit will transform you into the same image. I'm going to ask Dave and the worship team to come on forward as I close. Last thing is this. I've been talking to Christians for much of the time this morning. And as Christians, again, we all, that veil is removed for us. But if you remember what Paul has said earlier in this passage, only through Christ is this veil taken away. And so, if you are in here, and if you are not a Christian, if you have not turned to Christ, then the veil is not taken away. That veil of separation still exists between you and God. I don't know what you're relying on to take that veil away. Maybe it's commandments of the law. Maybe you're trying to check off those little items on the checklist, trying to take away that veil. I'm telling you, it's still there. Only through Christ is that veil taken away. And until you turn to Christ, the veil still exists. You are still in your sins, and there is still death and condemnation. 
And so my urge and my plea for you is this simple, turn to Christ this morning. Have the veil removed for the first time. You'll be free to behold the glory of God. You'll have right standing with Him. And then from this day on, you'll start a process of transformation whereby you are being conformed to the image of Christ. It won't be all at once. You won't walk out of this place perfect, looking like Christ, but it will start a gradual transformation, a process. And you will be conformed to His image gradually. And that transformation will take place. And so if that is you, I don't know, talk to somebody, man. Come talk to me, talk to Pastor Rex, talk to Pastor Dave, find another trusted person who you know is a Christian in here. If that is you and you turn to Christ and have the veil removed for the first time, do not leave this room without letting somebody else know. So let's stand. Let's pray. morning. God, we thank you that you are at work in our lives to transform us into the image of Christ. Father, help us to get our eyes off of ourselves. Help us to turn our eyes to Christ to behold his glory, because we know that as we do so, God, you are at work to change our lives. So help us, Father, to go from this place and behold your glory every day. Father, I pray for anybody in this room right now has not yet turned to Christ. Father, I pray that you would draw that person to yourself. God, I pray that they would turn to you for the first time, knowing that you will remove that veil. It's going to start a process of transformation. Help us now to sing to you, God. Help us now to, as your people, behold your glory and sing with great joy and with great thanksgiving. And we ask and pray all of these things in Jesus' name.